In opposition, Dr Shane Reti said the then government had ignored a crisis in health. Now he is the new minister in charge of the system he described as broken. The problems have been well documented. Overrun emergency departments, shortages in almost all medical disciplines, thousands of nurses registering to work in Australia. Meanwhile, two-thirds of GPs are intending to retire within the next decade. Thousands of people are waiting for more than a year for planned medical treatment they've been approved for. Among the first governments, uh, among the new government's first actions, however, confirming plans to scrap the newly formed Māori Health Authority and the previous government smoke-free legislation. Shane Reti practised family medicine and dermatology in Whangarei for 16 years and also served three terms on the board of the Northland DHB before winning the Whangarei electorate seat in 2014. He still retains, I think, a practising certificate. Tēnākwe, Dr Reti. Welcome to 9 to 9. Thanks for coming in. Tēnākwe, Catherine. Good to speak with you. So now you're in charge of the political oversight of the system of which you have a good deal of knowledge and have described as broken. What's your immediate focus? So uh, I think absolutely uh, this system is in crisis and uh, the previous government did not want to call it what it is. Uh, I have no issue doing that. And that's actually important. It's six letters. But what it sends is it sends a signal of urgency. It sends a signal that you understand, that you understand the front line. And this is no reflection uh, on those hard workers who turn up every single day to ED, for example, knowing they're going to be understaffed, knowing that there's going to be uh, lots of people in the waiting room. It's no reflection of that. Uh, More the policies and direction that uh, the, the previous government had. So being in this privileged position, I am here now in the ability to look at how we might change direction, change where the good ship health is going. There are several things that are a very high priority for me, and you've mentioned some of them, uh, waiting times, uh, faster cancer treatment times, emergency department times. All of those have significant tails to them that are going to take some time to fix. In fact, the previous government said it might take three to five years to get to a steady state uh, for hospital well, services again. do you agree again. with them now? Uh, uh, it was hard in anyone's hands. It will be hard in anyone's hands, and it will be hard in my hands as well, actually. Uh, but I want to do significantly better than that. And uh, we'll be announcing in the coming weeks uh, what our uh, targets are and um, how we'll address them. So I'm looking forward to that. So you will give specific targets for, for what? For emergency departments to reach safe levels of staffing? For what? How will you measure? Uh, uh, we'll give targets uh, around immunisation, we'll give targets around uh, wait lists, we'll give targets around emergency times. Uh, some of them may be the existing targets uh, that will then define a plan as to how to reach them. Uh, the targets may well be correct, but they just weren't being achieved. So uh, we'll outline that as part of our 100-day commitments. So come down to the front lines, the emergency departments now, first staff, staff safety becoming an issue. And this is perhaps linked to the fact that people who have got nowhere else to go turn up at ED. They've just become a free-for-all to some extent. What will you do in the first instance to improve staff safety? So I think it links to several things. One, yes, uh, challenges getting in to see your primary care practitioner, which is the best place to be your medical home. Emergency departments are never well suited to be your medical home. But secondly, uh, when you are in ED and you're waiting for 9, 10, 12 hours, uh, that is not good for uh, your mood, tone and the issue that brings you to ED in the first place. So one of the very first things uh, that we did was to increase ED security over this Christmas time. And just look at that for a moment. With decisive decision-making and the will of the sector, we employed 200 people over the whole hospital sector in three weeks. When was the last time you saw Health New Zealand move that quickly? Is that security staff? Security staff, correct. Well, I know, but to be honest, I don't think the health sector thinks of its primary focus for staff Hiring, needing to be security staff, it may need to for a rather extreme situation. 
but it's a pretty sad reflection on where things have got that that's the necessity. Um, let's remember there was Christmas coming up, and so the peak time where staff are at risk, uh, there was three weeks to get that right. And so we didn't send the signal that we can move quickly when we who, do. Who your, secu- your, your wider who, who, who point... Who were the security uh, staff? Who were they? Yeah. Were they private security firms? Generally, yes. Uh, what they were, they were those who were already providing security, and we expanded uh, the remit that they had and the requirements that we had so that they could do more What quickly. will it take to get those waiting times down from 9 to 10 hours? So many of the pathways to pain, if you like, in health actually point back to health workforce, which I think is the, is the point that you're making. And that's health workforce across the whole board, in primary care and secondary care. That's the underlying need we have. We can build new facilities. We can do other things. If we don't have staff to work in those facilities, what does it matter? So health workforce, health workforce, health workforce is the underlying number and one And what do priority. you do about it? And do about it in a timely fashion. We've had health workforce task forces going back about 20 years. Mm. The issue is well documented. The number of shortages is well documented. The fact there's not a dermatologist at Wellington Hospital at the moment, it's the one of the not on the phone to you. See what you're doing after this. Um, you know, the cardiologists in Waikato at the moment are facing a very strict summary of the state of their services. How do you improve the state of the workforce in a timely manner? Mm. So there are generally three things uh, to health workforce, or three buckets, if you like. There's the overseas bucket, the immigration uh, component, if you like. Uh, are we welcoming? Are we receptive? Uh, do we compete well internationally? My angst there is that's a nice thing to say, or we'll reach the immigration bucket. My concern is we may be too late to that piece. The mobile medical workforce has moved to Canada. They've gone to Australia. So I still want to be in that space, but it's not what it might have offered us two or three years ago it's less. Secondly we've got those who are already here and this talks to recruitment and retention. Recruitment and retention has two parts to it. It's wages and salary but it's also terms and conditions. How do we retain those who are already here and that talks to pay parity and pay equity and those sorts of things. There's another group there's those doctors and nurses who are here and for some reason we let them drive Uber Eats in Auckland. Why would we do that? Why can we not find them what's called the apprenticeship years, the PGY1 PGY, they've passed NZRECs They've met their medical council requirement, and yet we can't find them those two training years in a hospital to bring them into the workforce. We let them drive Uber Eats in Auckland. Why let's, would we do let's that? Let's look at the two points then. If you're saying immigration is gone, let's look at the retention. You're right. There's been some move on pay, both for nurses, base pay, and also senior doctors, I think, settled just before Christmas. But... Nurses can still earn thousands of dollars more once overtime and penal rates such as holiday pay are included in Australia. Over 7,000 nurses registered last year to work in Australia. What do you do to take that head-to-head competition to stop us continuing to lose staff to Australia? Yeah, there's there's several things there. First of all, we've never competed with Australia, and uh, they have a different funding system, uh, how they fund health care. So we're not comparing apples with apples. Just to make that statement, we've never actually compared with Australia. Secondly, what we need to be looking at here is we need to have conditions uh, that are suitable. This talks to things like uh, care capacity demand management model, which says that the acuity or the morbidity or the amount of resource required on any ward, you have the right staffing to, Will to meet that you go with the last government wouldn't and just finally do a deal on safe, safe staffing with the nursing? Yes, it's really interesting. So 85... I mean, that, that's what they want. They want an, and safe staffing isn't about having a security guard. Safe staffing is about oh. having enough people on your shift to be able to do your job properly and not be in a constant state of stress. Well, you need to be safe in your work, firstly. But secondly, you're right. It's, it's that measure. We're 85% through what's called CCDM, also known as the Safer Nursing Accord, which is, which is what you're talking about. And uh, I've asked for briefings as to how we can progress that because 
this sense of what does 85% sen- through mean? You've agreed on 85% oh, of 100%? Uh, so, uh, Are you delivering 85% of what, of what is wanted? Yeah, well, that, that's correct. What's happened is uh, the workforce is deployed. 85% of the uh, health workforce environment uh, is meeting care capacity demand management criteria is what that means. So Safe staff. Yeah, that's right. It's 15% of the workforce across the whole enterprise. Um, that is not. And if we recall, I believe it was June 30, 2021, uh, Andrew Little, as Minister for Health, said we would be 100%, 100% deployed, and, and clearly we're not. Um, and so that's something that I've asked for briefings on because I, I am wanting to move that. It, so now it's we stuck go in a circle. 85. If we're not going to compete with Australia or compare ourselves to Australia, are we going to keep losing those nurses to Australia? Um, look, I think what we need to be doing is uh, we need to be focusing uh, on recruitment and on retention. And the retention component, as I say, is those two parts. It's wages and salary and it's terms and conditions. And we are making progress. On pre- and I want to give credit, previous government made progress on wages and salary. We also need to be looking at terms and conditions, which is what the Safe Nursing Accord is. That's how we focus on retention. So the way to retain the nurses is to give them the working environment where they don't want to go to Australia, but we're not there yet. Yes, I think that's, that's a fair statement to make. Okay. Yeah, we, okay. we, we need them to be in a safe environment where they feel empowered, valued, where they have a career for life. Uh, these are the things that uh, nurses say they want to be what in a safe, about the safe other environment. The physios, for example, can earn $30,000 more at graduate level in Australia. But let's look at something like um, the psychiatrists and even the clinical psychologists who are vital in various parts of our overall uh, public system, actually. I can't remember what the figure is for clinical psychologists. I think most last about three years in the public system and then go into private or they burn out and leave. Now, why is that happening? Why can the public system not retain these other key professionals? It comes down to those same two things. None of that is different to those two things, wages and salary and terms and conditions. It's, it's those same two parameters. But what are you going to do about it now that you're in charge? Ah, so clinical psychology is a really good example. So my colleague, the Minister for uh, Mental Health, Matt Ducey, um, in our coalition agreements and in our discussions, he's specifically focused on clinical psychologists, although focused on a different area primarily around how we bring more on board, how we turn on the tap at the so, entrance path okay, to that. But, but <laughs> But what's the point in spending, what is it, six, seven, eight, nine years, depending on which part of the profession you're in, training them and then losing them to the private sector inside three years? So you have to work across the whole spectrum. You have to turn on the input, the start place, and then you have to focus on retaining them. So what is it that would retain them? Will you and your colleague commit to whatever pay and conditions, and I suspect, again, the conditions, i.e. not be chronically overworked to the point where you feel like you can't do your job properly, will be the bigger factor. Will you commit to addressing those, and if so, how? So I think that pathway is already in place towards uh, looking at uh, pay equity and pay parity uh, and towards uh, what conditions of work are. I so don't think there's anything what you're telling new me is here. quite a bit of what the previous government might have done not quickly enough is actually what you're relying on to deal with some of these issues. Look, we're wanting to do better, and I think you're partly right, because those, those two points, uh, talking about wages and salary in terms and conditions, they're the same, they're immutable in anyone's hands. It's just how do you do that better? How can you, as you say, maybe more quickly uh, bring those two factors into play? You've brought in a Crown Observer at Health New Zealand to Whata What is it that is not happening to your expectations in the new National Health Authority? Oh, so uh, the purpose of the Crown Observer is several things. Uh, first of all, to signal that this is a new government. 
and we have new objectives. And uh, that was very clear in our 100-day plan and in our coalition agreement. Secondly, the Crown Observer also helps me as a monitor of the Health New Zealand Board. Uh, I am the penultimate monitor of that board and the delivery of government's expectations, but our Crown Observer is also able to help me in that role. Do you intend to retain the board you inherited at Tafata Ora from the previous government? Uh, yes, I do. I've expressed my confidence in the board and um, we'll continue to monitor that as we make our way along to see how well they can help us achieve our objectives. Is there a value in having an executive chair, i.e. as a new system is being introduced, do you want the board essentially to sit on the executive and be part of executive Decision. So um, we're very clear in New Zealand that the model of governance we work with is a clear split between governance so and, not and, and operations, okay. and, and I think it's best to keep that. $100 million they spent on consultants last year, that was actually down from the year before. And yes, there is a restructuring happening. The question is, do those consultants know how to restructure a health system? And has it been set up in a way that can function? Yeah, that's a really good question. I litigated this in in opposition. Uh, Actually, the transition unit through DPMC was the prime body for offering advice and reforming uh, the health system. And uh, in in my view, uh, it has not been value for money and they have not given us a structure that uh, has uh, any ability to deliver the objectives, which is why I'm changing it. So who's going to do that and how? I already expressed to uh, the uh, board that I expect uh, the number of contractors and consultants to continue to decrease, that I expect more frontline staff, uh, less back office staff and less consultants and contractors. Furthermore, when we do, and let's be clear, we actually do need some consultants and contractors where we don't have expertise or when we need arm's length advice. That, that's when we do need them. But when they come in, they need to leave something behind. Like We can't bring them back the next month for exactly the same piece of work. Say it's IT, and they left no residual knowledge in the system. That's not good, because I am adamant we will lift public sector capacity. And to do parts of that, we're going to need some of that external expertise. Then leave some of it in the sector so we're better when you leave. Has too much experience been lost from the former DHB leadership? Oh, it's really interesting. My sense to that would probably be yes, actually. Uh, there was a lot of organisational knowledge in those CEs, in the coups, uh, which is your real operational level. And uh, they have gone either offshore or into retirement or into, um, into private well, sector. they've come back as consultants, some of them. And some of them have come back as consultants. So I, I do worry do you, about that loss. How do you bring back that capacity? We are talking about the staffing shortages in in the um, systemic shortages in the clinical side of things. How do you get it back in the leadership and the actual decision-making in hospitals? And you seem to be hinting Mm. that you want more clinician role in decisions. Absolutely. So Uh, how, how do they... How do you make that happen structurally? Oh, oh, You're going to uh, have to unrestructure some of the restructuring. First of all, it's a policy decision uh, I express uh, to the board and through them, through to the management, uh, that I expect clinical leadership. I expect to see that represented in senior positions. I expect to see senior positions move from interim to full-time. Uh, I expect the health system to be led by clinicians and managed by management, not the other way around. And so a large part of that I can direct as a policy directive uh, from me to the board that that is my expectation. I do believe in clinical leadership. Our guest is Dr Shane Ritti. He is the new Minister of Health. You're listening to Nine to Noon with Catherine Ryan on RNZ National. It's 22 minutes past nine. The first moves by the new government have largely been about undoing things. How do you 
personally justify the scrapping of the previous government's smoke-free legislation? Uh, well, uh, this was a collective decision from the uh, coalition government, and uh, I have complete confidence that Minister Costello will be able to lead that forward. So Minister Costello, who is the associate who uh, holds the delegation Correct. here, given this 5,000 deaths a year attributed to smoking given this legislation is, was assessed to save perhaps 8,000 lives, given the costs of that on the health system before those deaths, I'm going to put it to you that you need an opinion on this. When you said it was a collective decision, you have to abide by that as a member of a collective cabinet. Does that mean that personally we could infer you might have a, you might have had a different view, were you not bound by that collective responsibility? Oh, we're all here to deliver the objectives of the collective coalition government, okay. and uh, I, I note the points that you're making. What I'd also note is that uh, I think it was two weeks before Christmas, uh, the health survey brought out the latest uh, smoking figures with the second biggest drop in smoking ever before this legislation was even enabled. I think it's really important there's been some confusion like we're going to undo the Smoke-Free Amendments Act. No, no, you're not. Wait, let's, let's be clear. Let's be but, clear. But some but of the this, public this have, and those projected. who email me do. I understand. This was It was quite uh, full-on legislation. It was going to radically restrict the number of outlets that could sell back to 600, and that was mm. a real issue in the, for the dairies. I understand that. Um, it was going to reduce the amount of nicotine in cigarettes, which I think you may still have a view on. We'll come back to that. And it was also going to mean that anyone born 2009, legally you could not sell cigarettes to them. It was also projected to have a radical impact on that residual smoking rate. The standout, Dr. Leti, was when your finance minister pointed out there'd be a billion dollars in tax in the new government's coffers that would not have been in the previous government's coffers because of scrapping these proposals. That is... It's very hard not to focus the mind on that. How many lives for that billion dollars in tax? Uh, that is a byproduct of the policy, not the reason for the policy. At the end of the day, we're completely committed to continuing to reduce smoking rates in New Zealand. It's stark, though, isn't it? when you see that many cigarettes being sold to raise that much tax, you really do need to translate that to how many human lives. Uh, which can be translated by the reduction from 86 to 6.8% in adult smoking rates uh, in the last health survey before this legislation was even going to land. Smoking still impacts Māori and Pacifica much, much more. Their smoking rates are still higher. We know their... Um, uh, health metrics just across just about every metric is uh, is worse than for than for other New Zealanders. You're now going to have um, a, a treaty or have an urgent treaty claim over this move, and I know you're going to say you can't comment for that reason. But surely, when so much of Mauridom and Maori Health and Pacifica Health leadership stands up and says this is wrong. Surely you have to accept what they are telling. Oh, certainly we're listening. We're never not going to listen. But uh, Minister Costello will lead out what our approach will be, and I won't preempt um, what her decision making is going to be. But uh, she will lead out what our approach to smoke free will be. So there will be some initiatives, be it based on vaping access, another whole can of worms I think we'll park for today, and based on the possibility of requiring reduction in the, in the amount of nicotine in cigarettes? Is well, that alive in your discussions? Uh, I can't preempt what Minister Costello is going to lead out. Um, she will have that decision-making, but um, she, will, she will present that uh, to Cabinet and then it will be um, brought into public domain. The abolishing of the Māori Health Authority. Advocates pointing out this was an initiative 20 years in the making. 
do you personally, again, we know you're bound by collective cabinet responsibility, but do you personally approve of the abolition of it? Yes. Yes, I do. Tell me what's good about decision-making for half a billion dollars of Māori health provider money being held in Wellington instead of out in the region. Yeah, but we do How that, we, that we do that with the, with the um, Tafata Ora, the new health agency now. We centralise now. You haven't undone that degree oh, of centralisation. Just give me time. Will you? Just give Will me you time. bring back I, district I, health boards I, in time? I won't bring back district health boards in the form that they were, but I am committed to delivering health care as close to the home and as close to the hapu as possible. The Māori Health Authority did not, would not and could not do that. Furthermore, don't just take my view for it. Look at the independent report that uh, came out in July last year that the Minister said she initially would not release because it was not in the public interest, eventually forced to before December, which was a scaling independent review of the Māori Health Authority. So it's not just my eyes looking and saying that it, it wasn't working as it was intended. The independent report said the same. It's only just been set up though and so no, too not has true. Not true. Also, it had 18 months in transition, and when you're coming up to year two, nearly three years plus, because I hear this argument often, what, should have hit the ground running is what it should have done. What was the essence of that criticism that you concur with from that report? What oh, were the that, failures? That there were multiple things. Uh, first of all, that uh, the governance arm was too operationally uh, involved, uh, that the direction wasn't clear, that there were staff vacancies. Uh, un- unfortunately, it failed part of the uh, State-Owned Entities Act by not having full disclosure of financial information in October last year. There was just a list of, of things. But they could still um, be described as teething problems, uh, as you know, Tafata Ora, I'm sure, would say, which hasn't been established officially for as long, would say is also part of its issue. Do you have to throw out the whole model? Um, I, I think there are, are parts of the model that um, that may have some validity, and we're working through that at the moment, but that concept of all the decision-making, the funding being held in Wellington, that Wellington will project out to the North Hokianga, if you like, and tell Pangaru what's good for them? I don't think so. So tell me about this idea that over time local decision-making will return to the health system. I, I think it was uh, Heather Simpson's report, which initially informed the government's reforms, that did talk about keeping a number of district health mm. boards. What is the strength in that system, and what is your thinking about moving, evolving back to something along those lines? Yeah, that's a really good point. I remember she said that uh, they should only be reduced to 8 to 12 uh, DHBs. And uh, she did mention a Māori health authority, but it was in the context of 8 to 12 DHBs uh, remaining. So uh, she was not of a view of completely abolishing them, as this government um, chose to do. Uh, I'm enthusiastic to uh, have care back in the regions, back where there's local decision-making, where there can still be quality uh, quality monitoring uh, through the system. But that mantra of care as close to the home and as close to the hapu as we possibly can is is a good thing. the argument about going to a more national model, apart from the IT stuff, which was just a, I'm trying to think of a non-sweary word, you know, it, it, it is ridiculous that the various parts of the health system Agreed. cannot talk to yep. each other in yep. a timely manner. There are some manner, things right? that need to be owned centrally, okay. like, like terminology. So you should have one code for right. heart failure, so for example. So that's IT. But the other argument about a more central model was the postcode lottery and also the ability to, to manage demand across various districts. In other words, if there is capacity in Manawatu to do surgery, People from Wanganui should come across and get their surgery there in a timely manner. Now, that that has to be part, surely, of your management if you're going to reach all these targets you have for timely delivery of care. Oh, that, how, that, how can you achieve that with district health boards inevitably focused on their priorities and their patch? Yeah, so uh, the ability to have uh, regional... 
uh, first of all, sensitivity, so bringing the regional needs out of the region, and then within national frameworks, targets and guidelines, the ability to then to deliver care into those needs, that's, that's what you're looking for. And I completely agree. There are some parts of centralisation, as I said, like terminologies, uh, like some of the overall view of uh, some of the services, for example, where you might have radiotherapy machines. Uh, do you really want them all clustered in one region? Which regions are missing out? That needs a national view. And so there are some parts that need to be owned by the centre, uh, absolutely. But we need to be very careful because what has happened here is we've lost local accountability, we've lost local decision-making, and it's all owned by the centre. That's what I need to push back towards the regions. Do you accept there are absolute inequities in the health system with respect to Māori and Pacifica and that they are not necessarily driven by other... Uh, factors by um, uh, contributing factors that within the system itself they are missing out. Do you accept that? Absolutely. Talked about it for years. Published on it. Absolutely agree that the so in the absence of the Maori Health Authority, what, who, is a hundred percent focused within a big and complex and political system in doing something about that? Uh, so what we've said is that we will have a uh, Maori Health Directorate inside Health New Zealand. And we'll have an operational alarm, I say again, inside the Ministry of Health and an operational arm inside of Health New Zealand. And they will be tasked to focus and deliver on the inequities that you're describing for everyone. There's inequities of access, there's inequities of geography, there's inequities uh, of gender. They'll be tasked with focusing on those inequities. We began talking about emergency departments and your observation was the place to start was a GP or a primary care mm. or a hapu health service, not the emergency department. Mm. Three, no, two-thirds. Two-thirds of our GPs are intending to retire within the next 10 years. I think it's coming down to eight years. That's not even long enough for last year's healthy intake of med students who indicated they want to go into GP to, to be ready, mm. to, to be specialist one year's intake. Mm. What the hell are we going to do about that? Yeah, primary care is a real problem. What are we going to do about uh, that? It's a real problem. So, again, it's across the spectrum. Um, I'm encouraged by the 50 new places uh, that start probably next week, I guess, uh, in the medical schools, 30 in Auckland, 20 in uh, Otago. So turning on that domestic pipeline so we grow our own homegrown, culturally competent doctors and nurses, that, that, that's really important. Eight but it's, years, it's, three quarters gone. It's, it's a long tail coming through. Uh, and it also comes back on one level to what we were talking about, retention. Once we get them through, once we mm-hmm. graduate them, what are wages necessarily, what are terms and conditions? Understood. And, and what I'd put to you is there is the highest number of general practice registrars this year than in decades. So let's look at this a different way. They have for years, primary care, been arguing that they are by any measure underfunded. I think I had a figure of up to 25%. I think they're still in an argument with Tafata Aura over that uh, and accepting those figures. They're in the situation where hospital nurses are being paid more than their nurses, so they're struggling to retain that workforce as well. Their capitation funding seems to come from the dark ages when we're now doing so much consulting online. How do they recoup the money that they're not getting from face to face? What is your view on perhaps making that a profession and a, and a business, which under the structure it is, that is sustainable for some of these intending to retire. Yeah, don't disagree. And in fact, the uh, seminal piece of work that even general practice wants us to adopt is the Sapir report, which uh, came out in June last year, uh, buried until December when it was first came into public domain. And what it says is several things. It talks about new money 
and existing money. Existing money, it says the capitation formula, does not well align with where the work is done. So if you're the healthiest person in New Zealand, you'll receive, if you've got the same demographic, exactly the same capitation funding as the most sick person for the same age and gender and, and so on and so forth. That doesn't make sense. You're going to do a lot more work, clearly, for the person who is more ill. But capitation doesn't reflect that. So what Sapir said, look, there are some variables that we should add to the capitation formula, like community services card, for example, that better represent where that existing funding should be spent. I agree. Have people working on that. Secondly, new money as well. I think primary care does need new money. I think it has been underfunded. underfunded. So I think it's a combination of two things. How we redistribute so that where the work is done is where the funding goes. That's a capitation formula. And then how new money comes into the system as well. Will you also have a project, you talked about people who are driving Uber who with two years Mm -hmm. training could return to the workforce. Uh, There are also, and we hear from them often, any number of health professionals with lapsed registrations have to pay. I mean, surely that's a starting point. Why is not why is there not a project to say you know what for a period of time you're prepared to come back and commit we we're going to waive those or or, or heavily subsidise those registrations? To be honest, the main reason they don't want to come back is because they don't like the sure, state of the sure. workforce. Sure. But. Will there be a concentrated project on that starting now? Well, there already has been. So with nurses, uh, how we could recruit nurses back into the system, particularly during COVID, uh, there are a number of projects as to how we could quickly recredential and recertify them. So uh, that, that's not a new thought. Uh, that's but, already well, been I'd in be process. Thought, is it happening? We know uh, it happened under COVID. I know it happened specifically under COVID. But is it well, I'm not now a- an actual project for you I- in... I'm not aware that those parameters have changed, but uh, this all talks to retention, those who already are here or have recently been here, um, how do we retain them in the system. Thank you for your time this morning. I hope we will talk again frequently. Dr Shane Riti is the Health Minister.